Welcome back to the Librarian Linkover podcast. I am your host, Lorreen Kennard. After roles in academic libraries, including in data-related roles, my guest today works in policy. Shay Swagger is Senior Policy Analyst, Data Sharing and Ethics at the Future of Privacy Forum. Shay is my first guest working in data and policy. I'm excited to find out how his library experiences and skills impact his organization. Shay, welcome to the Librarian Linkover. Thank you. I really appreciate being here. So what is the Future of Privacy Forum and what is your role? So FPF is probably what I'll reference it as going forward, um, is a nonprofit that does um, a lot of conversations and research and, uh, oh, excuse me. I need to put my cat down one second. Sure. Um, we love uh, pets and kids, so that's fine. <laughs> Very involved. Um, so we think a lot about privacy and in particular how emerging technologies impact privacy. And so we have um, a lot of different working groups that are topic specific. So if something happens in the policy space or the technology space around mobility and location tracking, that working group handles that. We've got an AI working group, one on uh, VR or immersive technology, some on um, focused on like global legislation or US legislation. Um, so it is bringing a lot of smart people that are uh, interested in um, technology, privacy, and uh, policy, and trying to figure out how to understand everything that's happening so quickly and getting out quick analysis to the people that need to make decisions around uh, these kinds of topics and issues. And it's really, really fun. Like I'm having a blast and it's it's just a cool organization to be a part of. That's great. You guys probably see some scary stuff. Like we think we know like what's going on, <laughs> but you guys probably see some scary stuff. I mean, I, I think we're not privy to anything that you're not. Uh, like we don't have like special access to secret meetings or like, you know, <laughs> darn. I know. I, I totally, I, I, I thought there might be, I was hoping there unfortunately is not like more <laughs> to a, a dungeon meeting, but um, I think it's just a amount of like, we are afforded a lot of time to pay attention to a very narrow topic and have a lot of connections to other people that have that same um, luxury. And so in that sense, we get to spend a lot of time thinking and talking and writing and researching around uh, these narrow topics. And so that affords us an ability to to have some depth and nuance in a way that I wasn't previously able to do just because I was doing a lot of different topics at a, maybe a shallower level, but a wider range. Mm -hmm. And so that that narrowness and the depth is a new experience for me that's really fun. So what traditional library skills do you use in your role? Oh my gosh, all of them? Like I have this <laughs> a lot. Like um one of before I dig into what are the skills that are transferable, I would say that trying to do the the crosswalk or the translation work of library skills to non-library sectors is an incredibly important skill that I had to develop. Uh, mm -hmm. I was able to mentally make that mapping of, we call it this in libraries, but it's actually called this in, you know, law or policy circles. Uh, then I was like, oh, all of these translate really well. So um, 
one thing that translates really well is being able to navigate information systems quickly. Uh, and even in uh, like a, a database or a system that you've never used before, librarianship as a uh, profession and as a discipline trained me very well to kind of jump into the deep end of the pool, figure out what I need to know quickly and to be able to synthesize and communicate that information to people well. And one thing that I liked a lot about my previous roles in librarianship is it was so cross-disciplinary. And so like in the morning, I'd be, you know, working with people in like experimental physics and then the afternoon, the same day, it's like interpretive dance and like modern dance work. <laughs> and it's like, and I loved both of it, but it was very different kinds of problem sets and questions and methods. And the people were all fascinating and brilliant. And so like they're experts in their field and you have to somehow support them. And so you are expected in librarianship to uh, be able to develop expertise in a topic or subject that you may know nothing about, but in half an hour, you have to meet with a patron or a student or a faculty member and be like, here are the things that are coming up for this kind of topic. Here are the primary sources that are the most important. Here are the things that uh, have developed in the last few years. And so that ability has served me very well in my new role. I had that when I worked in a corporate library. It was like, can you find me some things on this and that? Yes, I can. And I'd have to spend a few minutes like, what is this? Mm -hmm. So that I can figure out what to look for and what the sources are. That oh, that is yeah. a that is a good skill that we have. So you've talked about this a little bit, but how do your library experiences and education enable you to add value to the future of Privacy Forum? Um, I think that I have um and by me, I think librarians have a pretty sophisticated understanding of information landscapes and how certain types of knowledge are created in a way that we can see behind the curtain a little bit. Um, and then in other ways, I've been totally like unprepared that librarianship did not give me skills that I had to learn. Um, and that's fine. Like anytime you mm -hmm. change it, your job like you're gonna have a learning curve and I had a pretty big learning curve when it came to policy and how like law and legislation was created um and so I think in some ways it's been fantastic and in other ways that I thought I would be better at I'm not and that was a humbling experience um that maybe my perceptions assumptions and like almost commitments around what I think certain things should look like or be uh, were incomplete. And so uh, hmm. it was a really great experience for me to to leave libraries for a lot of reasons, which we can dig into. But one of them, I think, is that my um, perspective of the information landscape has matured and has a lot more nuance to it. Whereas before, I think it was much simpler and more of a caricature of certain parts of it. And now it feels like a more nuanced or complicated in a good way uh perspective that is a great answer what kind of goals do you have in your position uh to have fun like i know that's a weird answer but <laughs> um i was talking to my colleague yesterday and we were talking about you know career goals and what are the things we want to do and where i am in my life at least is i want to continue to learn and grow 
and enjoy what I'm doing. And when that stops is when I'll start looking for another job. But where I am right now is I have an incredible manager, the best manager I've ever had. I'm learning constantly. I'm having fun. I have a great community of kind people, which I value now more than ever that the, the kindness and the support uh, I'm offered by my colleagues and, and my community are extremely positive. And so because of that, I like, I have really good mental health. I'm happy. I've got a, you know, a work-life balance that feels great and sustainable and I'm compensated well. And like, so those are things that are like really essential to like my happiness. And if those change, then I'm going to start looking around really quickly. And I think that libraries have taught me that when I don't have those things, like I'll get really depressed or sad or burnt out. And I don't want to go back to that. And so I think it's like libraries are not, a you know, your bad past relationship and for everybody. But when you like, <laughs> date someone that you're like, oh, I don't want to go back to that. Um, so it's like the toxic relationship that you learn from that you have some healthier boundaries from. Um, because and not all of it was a toxic relationship. It was like really joyful for a long time for me. But um, I think it is I've learned now more what I need in a job to to be okay. So weird answer, but that's kind of where I'm at. I don't think it's a weird answer at all. I think in like traditional, you know, public libraries, academic libraries, there are a lot of issues. Yeah. There are a lot of serious issues that they don't seem solvable because who will solve them? Mm -hmm. Like, like fine, yeah. you know, pay is the big one. Like who's going to yeah. solve that? That is, you know, that's not a solvable issue. Yeah. Compensation in for a public me, library. Yeah, like one of the biggest issues and, and battles that I fought at my last institution and in some ways are still like involved in, in terms of salary equity and transparency. Um, and it is not to me something that librarians can solve at all, or even universities, like there nope. has to be political mm -mm. will from a state and federal level to fund investment in social infrastructure like education and libraries. And it doesn't matter if all the librarians got together, like it takes politicians to make decisions around funding. Um, and until that happens, I don't see a lot of structural change for the better. The irony is public libraries are governed by boards who are the community mm -hmm. who could do something about it. So community library boards can increase funding? They can certainly get ex look for funding in other sources okay. and look at their budgets and take a look at their budgets and try to find some more money for pay. I mean, if that's an option, I, I know um, academic no, libraries- No, most libraries don't have a lot of extra, I'm not saying extra money. Most <laughs> public libraries don't have that, but, but I think you know the difference between when I was a public library director, they wanted to give the board wanted to give everyone a, a one percent raise. Mm. They were making ten dollars an hour, mm. and I'm like, so everyone's getting a dime. Jesus. I thought we could have gone a three percent raise, which, you know, isn't a ton more, but so you know, I, so like that is not a ton of money. The difference between those two is not a ton. So, like one thing that I'm in my job now is we have. Uh, cost of living adjustments every year, which was unheard of to me. Like, I don't, that didn't, mm -hmm. what you do what now? 
because mm-hmm. in a previous position and in, in a lot of positions, uh, the amount of raise that you get is often less than inflation, which means that every year you stay there, you're actually making less. Mm-hmm. And so that's a mm-hmm. to stay. The longer you stay, the less you make. And so having a, a role that just like automatically accounts for cost of living or inflation, I was like, oh, this is how it's supposed to be. And it feels really good. And it's like everything that I thought it was. And I think everyone deserves that. Like we all deserve fair compensation um, that sort of matches the economic realities that we live in. Um, and that's not happening. No. Well, I guess this is really a whole other podcast, but funding <laughs> is a big issue. Management, yeah. you know, yeah. training good leaders are two of the big issues I think that I've seen. Um, all right. Back, back on track a little bit, although it's all relative. Yeah. It's all relative. What suggestions can you give librarians um, who want to move into a position like yours? Uh, reach out to people that are in those positions. And I volunteer mm-hmm. myself to that. I have, I've had at least a dozen individual conversations with uh, people in the last year that are either wanting to leave libraries or librarianship in um, the near future or people that have uh, either are in library school or just coming out of library school and they're like looking at the options, wondering, you know, what's on the table. So uh, talking with people in those positions is the most fruitful thing you can do. Um, so find me online, reach out, happy to talk. Um, after that, I would say um, th- when I was looking for jobs, uh, I didn't even know where to start. And so um, there are so many job boards and places that are not traditional librarianship jobs um, that are really good. And um, uh, honestly, like having an online presence is really helpful. So I have a personal website that has, you know, the standard academic like CV stuff that you can download, but then also, you know, things that are a little bit more digestible for people that are not part of academia. And again, this goes back to translation work. If you are trying to break into a space that is not academic or out of outside of higher ed, um, you need to package the information about yourself and your skill set or your experience in a way that is intelligible to the people that, so they don't have to do the translation work because mm-hmm. they are going through a lot of applicants. And if you can reduce the cognitive load of translation for them, the higher the chance that you are to be considered. So um, thinking about how you're perceived and understanding some of those, like what is jargon, what is librarianship language, Versus what is, how is that understood in the sector that I'm trying to jump into? Um, And then presenting that in an online format is going to be your best bet. I often see jobs on LinkedIn that I share and say, this is a library job, like project management, any job that involves organization, customer service manager, like those are library jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, There Uh was a YMCA, like a local YMCA needed a branch, a manager. And I'm reading through it. I'm like, that's a library director job. Mm-hmm. You have a building, you have events, you have patrons, you have staff, you have budget. That's a library director job. And I think I think it goes both ways because hiring managers need to understand that, the skills, but we also need to be better at explaining our skills. Yeah. So there's there's kind of a you know, kind of like a, a two-way street there. 
um, but I think a lot of libraries are doing librarians are doing a good job of presenting themselves as qualified based on their skills. And mm -hmm. there's a disconnect with some of the hiring managers that are like, oh, you're a librarian. Like they don't understand mm -hmm. the skills we bring. And like so, you said, they get so many applications. They're just going through them going librarian, but, you know, reject, right? Keep moving. One thing that um, I'll add to that is that because there are so many skill sets within librarianship, um, like I, I know that jack of all trade gets kind of thrown around a lot. Um, and I generally see that as a good thing, but I, I think there there is a um, an area where librarians have some, but not all of the skill set. So like project management is a good example of a lot of librarianship is project management. Um, I now work with project managers. Like they, you know, got a master's degree in project management. They like went to business school and it's night and day in terms of capacity and skill set um, because there were certifications and trainings and things that like I didn't even know about. And so librarianship probably got them like 30, 40% of the way. But that last 60%, it was like, oh, these are really cool tools, ideas, strategies, ways to think through. And so it is it is good and necessary to be able to translate and signal that you can do project management. But it is also really good to know that there are like other things outside of librarianship and uh, disciplines that have a lot to add. And it's worth going and, and getting that certification or getting that training that has nothing to do with library school or librarianship. Um, and I also realized that certifications probably count for more outside of academia than they counted for inside academia. And so like a certification in project management, um, counts for a lot in like industry or nonprofits. Um, whereas inside, I don't, I don't know if it was deemed the same. So like, yes, librarians can do a lot of things that are transferable but there are also really helpful and valuable um, disciplinary skill sets that are worth checking out. So sort of along those lines, what made you decide to make the move out of official library roles into more of an industry area? Yeah, so I've, I've written about this uh, in a blog post on my website and I don't wanna like summarize the whole thing, but I'll point you to that if um, people wanna sure. check it out. Uh, it's called Reflections on Leaving Librarianship. But a few things happened all at once. So COVID was a big turning point for me that I saw my institution and uh, a lot of institutions, I mean, mine wasn't any like better or worse than most of them. Uh, they were trying to make decisions about health and people's well-being in the beginning. Uh, and then at some point when it you know, went on for too long for them financially, they started making, you know, public health decisions based on budgets. And, you know, how would a, you know, a mask mandate or a vaccine mandate affect enrollment? And that was the main turning point for me. I was like, oh, like, there's an acceptable amount of loss of life for you as an, as an institution, if it means that you're financially solvent. And when I understood that that was their calculus, I realized I had to get out. And, it, and it's not because all higher ed is evil or greedy or scheming. Um, but I, I realized that they were willing to let me die if it meant that they could keep the doors open. And 
I had spent, you know, 10 years in higher ed and I had given so much emotional labor and physical labor towards the system that I was really trying to make better. I didn't see a lot of improvement in, in terms of a lot of like the DEI and equity work that I was invested in. And when I, when I really internalized and that crystallized for me that that's kind of where my value was, I was like, I'm not paid enough for that. Like, I mean, you know, there are, you know, companies out there that probably have the same moral calculus that, that this does, but they'll pay me twice as much. And so if I'm going to be expendable. <laughs> if you survive, you'll yeah. at least be making more money. <laughs> yeah, I, I can be expendable for someone that, that will pay me six figures. And in the meantime, and so like, that was a big part of it. And um, I, I think that I'm in a better place emotionally from that now. So I don't see, uh, you know, my expendability as a, a main criteria anymore for when I think about the budget. <laughs> but it was a, a turning point for me that like, we're not paid enough and we're not going to be able to fix this. And I had those conversations with my bosses and I was very open. I was like, listen, you know, here are six things that if we can change, I'll stay. But if we can't change, I need to leave. And they're like, we literally cannot change any of these six things. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be looking for another job. And I will give you as much notice as possible. But um, that was also a really weird way to leave a job. I had never done that before. Like the open, I am actively looking, I will be leaving. I'm mm -hmm. um, scary. It is scary because like not everyone can or should do that because there can be a lot of retribution or retaliation that can affect your ability to get the next job. I felt very safe in my position to do that. Um, and I, I think that openness did help that transition period for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard, but that's, that's kind of why I transitioned out. And also like, you know, I, I found a job that I was like really excited about, like FPF was doing very similar work in some ways, but also some different work that I'd never done before that I wanted to try. And it's been a great experience. That's awesome. So what kinds, sort of 180 here, yeah. what kinds of management skills do you regularly rely on? Um, my management philosophy has changed a lot over the last few years. It has gotten far more towards compassion and support. And it's uh, much more aligned with like my pedagogical commitments with teaching. And I think when I was trained... Uh, and I, I use that term very loosely because there's not very much management training. Um, but mm -hmm. when I served my previous managers, um, they modeled a form of management that was really transactional and somewhat authoritarian. Um, and I didn't like it. I didn't connect with it and I didn't see, um, the value of, of perpetuating that. And so um, when I tried to develop my own, um, I looked towards teachers that I really respected and how do they, um, you know, lead a, a group of students uh, to try to accomplish certain things over the course of, you know, 15 weeks. And I tried to bring in some of the, the teaching practices that I saw into a management setting and it worked really well. Like, um, not that I'm trying to, you know, teach my team, um, but in terms of how do you communicate, how do you center compassion and well-being? How do you have um, open dialogue that's safe, that people can, you know, bring up hard conversations? Um, and then 
I say that that that's like I don't do as much management in my position now as I used to in in uh, librarianship, although that might change. Um, but I I feel like, especially since COVID, I have shifted my perspective of management uh, to being just mostly a supportive role. Um, and also like in my current position, uh, everyone I work with is really, really good at their job, which is like- That helps. Yeah. Okay. So here's, it's this weird paradox of um, in some cases, they know more about their subject matter than I do. And so like the kinds of support that I can give them is limited when like, you know, they're an expert in X topic and I'm not. Um, I can help support them by connecting them with other people that are maybe more advanced in that topic and facilitating, you know, experiences and opportunities. But um, I can have great conversations around like, what are your, your goals in career? Like, what's your work-life balance look like? What are your, um, you know, things that, that you want to develop personally? Like I can help plan out those things with them, regardless of my expertise level. Um, and that's a different challenge with people than uh, that maybe are struggling in their role or don't have the adequate skill sets to uh, you know, fulfill mm -hmm. their responsibilities. That's a different kind of management. And I can do that really well too. Um, but it's having a team um, that is all like, they're performing at the top of their game. It's a great problem to have. I, I love it. Oh my gosh. Um, but I, I've, I've done all kinds of management where it is, you know, we need to uh, work with you on some basic skills or um, some behavioral issues or uh, drugs and alcohol addiction or, you know, it's management is all over the place in terms of the kinds of things that you need to address because people are messy. People are like, they're just, they're people. And we all have stuff at different stages of our life and all of us will be managed or uh, manage other people at some point. So like being able to engage with people across the range of skill, ability, um, I find really enjoyable and I learn a lot, but it is very much like, it's never the same. I'm always learning something new. Um, and I still find it, find it enjoyable. You know, when that person comes to your office door, you never know what you're getting. Yeah. And, and you, like, sometimes hey. I've had to go, okay, <laughs> let's uh, figure this out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so for librarians who work with budgets or who want to move into a position with budget responsibility, what suggestions can you give us on managing a budget? People sometimes they librarians think budgets are scary, but what what do you think about budgets? Uh, I think before you have a budget conversation, you have to have some self reflection and some honesty around your relationship mm. and numbers. Um, so a lot of people have math trauma. Um, <laughs> common, um, that like most people don't pick math as their favorite subject. Um, and that's okay. Not in our field. Yeah, and so, um being honest with yourself about your numeracy and your ability to understand numbers. And then um, a lot of it is emotional based in my experience. And sometimes you just need someone in your life that can help support you through that. Like, you no, know, not literally hold your hand, but emotionally like support you through learning some of the skills. Like if you don't know Excel or spreadsheets, you need to start there. Like that's, that's a basic competency. Um, 
secondarily, uh, you need to have some reflection about what money means to you. Um, I was part of this, gosh, I can't remember specifically the group, but as a facilitator was bringing together people that had uh, all funding roles of like large organizations. So we're talking, you know, sometimes millions of dollars. And one of the exercises they did is like, uh, you need to tell your story of your relationship with money starting as a child. I was like, what are you doing? This is weird. What, why are we doing this? <laughs> and then what I realized is um, like a lot of us had grown up poor and money was always a source of conflict. Like our parents were always arguing about the budget or, you know, who spent what on this. And, um, and so there was like this place of scarcity and like emotional uh, danger around money. And that regardless of whatever your financial status presently, a lot of us sort of carried in that association with money and budgets as a scary topic. And if you combine that with math trauma, then like trying to be responsible for a budget can be fraught. And so it becomes not a, you know, a conversation about um, numbers. It becomes an emotional conversation. Um and so that that can really get in the way of effective communication around budgets. Um, and then secondly, um, almost every conversation I've had about budgets organizationally in libraries is a conversation of scarcity because there's literally not enough money being funded for all the things. Um, and so like there's the, you know, emotional baggage that we bring to the table that makes it a conversation about scarcity because of our childhoods. Um, on top of the reality that it is a, a budget scarcity that um, is real, we're not projecting that is like the case. Um, but if we can bring numeracy skill sets to the table and we can, you know, unpack our emotional baggage around budgets and money and math and have that resolved, then like you're, you're dealing, you're taking up half of the emotional chargedness to budgets. Um so beyond that, um, if the organization doesn't have competent financial people, it's a really big red flag. Um, and there needs to be a lot of transparency. I am very much in favor of transparency around budgets, around salary information, how much people make. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that people uh, get really uncomfortable around that conversation, but I think it is one of the most effective ways to have uh, honest and open conversation around budgets is transparency. Well, it's sort of related to that. Um, when I was job hunting, and even now, when I see an interesting job that someone posts, I will look at it, and if it doesn't have the pay, I will ask them on social media, "Could you please post the salary?" Mm -hmm. Because mo many of us won't sh won't consider a job with no salary posted, and certainly won't share it within our networks if it doesn't include a salary. And yeah. once in a while, you hear from someone, oh, I, I just added it. And it's like, wow, great. But usually you don't hear anything or you hear, oh, that's proprietary. We don't, you know, whatever. Well, okay, but you're not getting as big of a hiring pool. You no. just aren't. If you're not going to post your pay, you're missing out on a lot of really good people. I don't, I don't even consider posts that don't have pay. And to me, not posting pay is a red flag at an organization. And I would discourage anyone from applying. Mm -hmm. so really strong, I agree. Like the, the secrecy around pay only perpetuates inequality and exploitation. 
and the organizations that continue to do this regardless of like the precedent that lots of states are passing like you have to post pay and like you know the states haven't exploded like things are continuing and fine <laughs> um, but like the organizations that choose to con to remain in secrecy um don't go work there like i know that like I, that's a flippant thing to say just don't work in those states because you know you can't just move but i just i think that organizations have no excuse to continue posting jobs without salary information it's just it's i think it's either the pay is low <laughs> yeah or, you're hiding the low pay absolutely or the they just like like um law firms i put i asked a law librarian one time if she could post the pay and she said they have a policy where they don't you know reveal it or whatever i think and that's also control mm -hmm. absolutely so anyway, my soapbox is post the pay because you're you're because <laughs> then you you. can't say you, you can't box. get people. You know, you can't say we can't find people mm -hmm. if you're making the application process with unnecessary barriers. Absolutely. Anyway, that's a whole thing. So what professional associations have you joined or which ones have you gotten the most out of? None. I don't really like them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'll you came it. to the wrong place, sir, because I love <laughs> professional associations. I've got a lot out of them. I volunteered and I've gotten a lot out of them. So you go ahead. Okay, so here's, tell us why you don't like them. Yeah, counterpoint. <laughs> counterpoint. <the> <laughs> um, I have, uh, so I, I went to American Library Association annual meeting mm -hmm. once, you know, joined, sat on some of the committees and tried to get a feel for that and generally walked away discouraged and felt like a lot of the energy and time was being spent at things that didn't have translational impact to the local level. Um, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to join all of my local committees. I'm going to do all of like the things at my campus or my state level. And then I had the same experience and then it was just, I, I felt like there wasn't a lot of um, local impact. And so I was like, all right, I'm going to do just campus. Maybe that's the thing. I'll join all the committees on campus. And I experienced the same thing. So I, I, maybe it's just my expectation of what I thought professional associations do versus what they actually do. And I thought that we were going to like do make meaningful work and progress and resources for the industry. Um, but because at least in librarianship, everything was all voluntary. There was no enforcement. There was no like, uh, consequence for not doing it. And it seemed like not much was changing. And so when I think about professional associations, um, I don't join very many. And the ones that I have joined are, I am actually like philosophically antithetical towards. Um, so for a while, and this is like, I am, I'm also a PhD student in education. And so, um, I, so this is an example of here's where a professional organization was very helpful for me is I study school shootings and I wanted to understand how like police security and law enforcement understand security and how they talk about conferences or talk about issues in conferences. So I joined the International Association of Chiefs of Police. I joined the American Jail Association. I joined maybe another one. And so in that sense, I got to go to their spaces, hear their speakers, understand their uh, priorities in the way that they communicated even though I disagreed with almost everything. Mm -hmm. That was a very valuable um, introduction into that world. And that helps me make sense of and connect with people uh, and 
positions around topics that I would never have gotten before. And so like, it's funny, like I didn't like ALA, but I liked the cop conferences, not because I agreed with the cop <laughs> conferences, because I agreed with ALA way more, but I felt like I got more useful information and insight into an organization that I would otherwise not have. So like, again, mm -hmm. not your typical answer. And if, if professional associations are valuable to you, if you find value in them, you should join them. Like if that's, if that's working for you, keep going. It just wasn't working for me. Well, I can give you some examples of where, and I mean, obviously join or not join, everyone has to make that own decision. But for me as a solo in a corporate library, the solo network helped me a lot from uh, SLA. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Like I grew up in, I grew up in SLA and I was the chapter or chapter president of SLA. So then I could do, make what I, make it what I wanted. Yeah. So that, so like I've done things where they direct directly helped me and I could help other people with the solo the solo division. Um, and then as chapter president, you make it what you want, you make it what you can. And then I just kind of do one-off things. Like I'm on the, um, SLA is reviving their magazine. So I'm on the editorial board of that, which is like, you know, not forever. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I'm not doing any of like the three-year term committees twice a month like that. I just can't do anymore. Um, but like ALA, I'm a mentor. It's like, mm -hmm. So I'm, I've been trying to find like temporary planning or one-off things like of course mentoring you know is fun once a month for a little bit of time and you're helping a student is fun um so that's what that's where i have found value um but ala has always seemed just like a behemoth with like a million committees and like there's so many hands in it that yeah. i i don't know how like things really could even process like get done myself so, but i know other i know people who are involved in yeah. that and they get a lot out of it but from the outside looking in it's too big I mean, I, I can like your SLA example is a really good one. I think that that's a that's a great counter example or or exception to like my observations because that makes so much sense. I also think that like the ethnic caucuses that they have are really valuable. I think that for people of color, it can be really lonely, and so having a support system mm -hmm. to in process and advocate for that can be really helpful. Like. I'm a cis white dude. Like I'm doing fine. There's not <laughs> like an ethnic caucus for like cis white dudes at ALA. Um, so that's called I, the world. Yeah, that's just yeah, that's <laughs> world, that's default life. Um, so I think that all all those examples make sense to me, but just because of you know my location and identity, like it it didn't work for me, and so I stopped joining, and I was happier because of it. But for if it's working, keep going. Well, and there are people who like to be in slow-moving committees where they don't do much, <laughs> right? Hey, oh, that's my hell. That's awful. Same. <laughs> I've been asked to do a few things that I'm like, no. Yeah. I, I know I can't do that. I can't survive that. <laughs> it's not yeah. for me. Like slow-moving things that, what are we doing? Yeah. Let's do something. If we're not going to actually do something and have a product or something to show. I can't do that. I'm with you. So, but I do agree with, as a librarian, going to like your subject matter associate or being familiar with your subject matter association, like seeing it from your, that point of view, I think that is a really good idea. People join, like they get MBAs or they join business or marketing, the marketing associations and things. So I do think it's really good to step out of the library association Absolutely. and get into your subject association because you have a different perspective of what your, your people might ask for. I would highly recommend that if you are a subject matter 
um, librarian or that's you have a particular demographic that is stable that like you're going to be working with for a long period, join their stuff. Like that's mm -hmm. a great move. So having said all of these things we've been talking about, why did you go to library school? And based on your career so far, does that reasoning still hold? That's a great question. Um, so I, in my undergrad, I was a philosophy major. I really thought I wanted to be a philosophy professor. And I was like, yes, that's, that's the track. So I started talking to my philosophy professors and being like, Hey, so like, I'm thinking about, you know, doing what you do and, and trying to, you know, get a PhD and try to get a tenure track job. And, um, they were really wonderful with me and, and how candid their responses were. And I was like, are you happy? And most of them said no. And mm. tell me more about why you're not happy. Like, what was the experience like? And they continued to uh, elucidate me on the grind of getting jobs in higher education and tenure track positions because it is awful. It is really, really hard and competitive. And like, you have to be the best of the best. You have to go to the best programs. You have to know the right people. And then you have to be really lucky because even all of those things don't stack into you get the tenure track job. And so most of them were adjuncts at institutions that I had never heard of before because they were in the middle of tiny towns that they never wanted to move to in the first place. And they would do that for a number of years. They would make $30,000, you know, teaching six classes, you know, a semester. Sometimes it was wild. And so I learned that the, the path of getting to that was not worth it. And so I looked at some other people in my life and I knew some librarians and they seemed to be pretty chill and pretty happy. And I was like, tell me more about that. And they're like, yeah, it's like, <laughs> it, you know, getting a job wasn't, you know, the easiest. It wasn't the hardest. Like here's kind of what my experience was. And so that felt semi attainable. Uh, it was a master's degree versus a PhD, which felt less expensive and less time. And they also generally had pretty good work, work life balance. Like they tended to work 40 hours a week and all of my philosophy professors were working, you know, 60 roughly. Um, and so they just seemed like happier, chiller people. And I wanted to hang out with them more than the sad professors I had. So uh, <laughs> I, you know, decided to go to library school and uh, fell in love with data management and, you know, wanted to do data management librarianship, which I did for a few years. Um, and I really, I have mixed feelings. I don't think my MLS education was very good. Um, and it was like the number one or number two program at the time. So it's like, I just don't think that MLS huh. education is very good. Um, I think it is longer than it needs to be. I think it's more theoretical than it needs to be. Um, I think it's not as skill-based as it needs to be. And I think it's very exclusionary to people that don't have MLSs because in the same way that librarianship can do a lot of other jobs, I think that there are a lot of other jobs that can do librarianship. And that's like a hot take. Like I've, you mm -hmm. listeners probably like 75% of you are mad at me now and that's okay. Like I can, I can handle the anger, but I do think that there are the gatekeepiness of only librarians have MLSs and you can't work in a library unless you have an MLS. Stop it. Like that's, it's not helpful. It's not inclusive. It's not, uh, I think, I don't think it's accurate. And so I think 
I'm glad I got an MLS because it allowed me to get the jobs that I got and I enjoyed them. I don't think the jobs that I had required an MLS education, like in the sense that of they adequately prepared me for the things that I was doing. Um, I think a lot of other experiences or educational backgrounds could have done exactly what I did as better or, or even, or as good or better. So that's an unpopular opinion. I stand by it. Uh, I might be wrong, but I, I do think that we can open the doors to more people and have um, a more inclusive, diverse workforce uh, because of it. And I don't think it would diminish the quality of service or experience by doing so. Well, I always say we don't have library skills. We have skills we're using in libraries. Mm. So that makes sense. Like people that aren't in libraries could come in. And I think the reason why that doesn't happen more often is the pay. And if we didn't have the degree requirement, there would be like the pay would be even less <laughs> than it is now. Because if you have these skills and you're doing them somewhere else, making more money, why would you go to a library where your pay is less? Anyway, we, we need to like get together sometime and talk about yeah. all these issues. Yeah, I'm down. We do. No, these are great. This is a great conversation. So if people want more information about the future of Privacy Forum, where can they find you? I believe it's fpf.org. Um, so I can FPF. put it in the show notes. Yeah, that'd be great. So here's the deal. FPF is a membership organization. So like we do all of this kind of analysis that uh, you have to pay into to get. That's kind of how we support ourselves. Like our funding comes from, we we do have, you know, uh, granting agencies like on the foundation side, you know, like Sloan or CZI, but we also have like NSF funding. But a lot of our budget comes from people that are like, we need to know about, you know, the, the most developed, most recent developments in uh, advertising technology. And so they pay for that. Um, there is only one group that is open and free to the public. And it's the one that I run. Uh, it's called the Ethics and Data and Research Working Group. So it is free and open to everyone. So librarians, non-librarians, literally anyone, students, anyone and everyone can join. I'll throw a, a link at you later that you can sign up okay. to. Uh, we have monthly meetings uh, to talk about some of the most recent developments in ethics, data, and research. Um, and there's a lot of overlap with librarianship, especially if you work at a research institution. Um, and then you also get access to, you know, emails that we send out or resources that we create. So I'd love everyone that's listening to join. Please come hang out with us. Um, but there are some public documents that FPF puts out that I think are really valuable. Uh, and I would encourage people to check out the org. Thanks for that. Thanks for doing this. This has been really great. We really... Um... We could talk for a lot longer about these topics. I would love to. Thank you to Shay Swagger for being my guest today on the Librarian Linkover. Thank you for supporting my podcast. Please like and follow the Librarian Linkover on your favorite podcast app. Follow them on social media and visit thelibrarianlinkover.com. Thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.